0: Welcome to Resolutions, the podcast of the ABA Section on Dispute Resolution. I'm Michael Russell, a mediator in Nashville, Tennessee, and one of the hosts of the Resolutions podcast. I'm joined today by Anton Melton-Mukes, the founder of Work Resolve Mediation in Minneapolis and a speaker at the upcoming ABA Dispute Resolution Conference. Uh, Anton, thanks so much for joining us, and welcome to our podcast.
1: Thank you, Michael. I appreciate the opportunity to share. Well, it's our pleasure, um,
0: Anton. Just by way of introduction, if you don't mind, tell our listeners uh, a little bit about yourself and your background and uh, how you got into the world of dispute resolution.
1: Yes, yeah, so it's been a circuitous route uh, for me. I think the destination um, is to be in the space of providing meaningful paths forward for people, and that's what uh, Work Resolve is really about is creating the right environment for employers and employees to you know, find a different path outside the traditional uh, litigation route uh, to find meaningful resolution and to move forward in their, in their lives or in their organizations. And so the, the, the journey has really been one of wearing different hats, um, really in the, the litigation and mediation process. I started out Um, as a practitioner outside counsel, representing employers for several years um, in both federal and state court, um, and was a a regular purveyor of the mediation process uh, from that perspective. Uh, Then I went in-house and led a a division of a Fortune 500 company, uh, focusing on employment issues, and uh, really developed a sense of the internal challenges of managing Um, Employees, but also especially when you have disputes, you know the proper and and most effective ways of resolving those. And quite often, it was the mediation process that was the best vehicle, Michael, to get to get to a quick and and meaningful outcome. I did a a couple of the HR roles when I was in house, and that was good because it it gave me a sense of how you know policies and procedures work, training, you know, all those kind of. Bits and pieces that are really critical to understanding how employees are impacted um, and when things go wrong, you know, what the organization can do from a almost like a restorative justice perspective to, to get things right and to make sure that they don't, they don't happen in a negative way going forward. And so I took all those experiences and, and thought, hey, I can do this in a different way to provide more meaning for the, the legal community. And so I started Work resolved Mediation.
0: Uh, at the, uh, at the conference in April, your, your panel will be discussing, uh, sexual harassment cases and sexual harassment mediations. I take it that's a, that's a big part of your practice. What other types of cases come across your desk?
1: Yeah, so sex harassment has really been significant. I also do, you know, the traditional discrimination claims, Title VII, state, um, state law claims. Wage and hour is also a significant area. Um, you know, here in Minnesota, we have a number of large, um, sophisticated companies, um, many of which have uh, non-compete agreements as part of their employment contracts, and so a significant portion of my work also deals with non-compete issues uh, in trying to help organizations deal with, you know, breach of contract and other types of um, concerns related to those provisions. Um, also do... A fair amount of work um, in um, housing, uh, fair housing discrimination, and public accommodations as well.
0: As a result of the Me Too movement, I know uh, sexual harassment is the topic of the conference that you'll be addressing. Uh, have, have you seen an uptick in sexual harassment cases with the uh, with the Me Too movement?
1: I have, Michael, and it's interesting. You know, one of the the benefits of being a mediator is you can have access to both sides, right? You can talk to plaintiff's counsel and defense counsel, and both in my own practice as a mediator, I've seen an uptick, but in talking with uh, the practitioners, um, they have also shared that, especially on the plaintiff's side, they've gotten significantly more uh, contacts and and reach outs from individuals um, who believe that they've been uh, subject to sex harassment. The challenge is quite often uh, will play as counsel share with me is that some of these claims are, you know, past the statute of limitations, but people are still reaching out because, you know, the Me Too movement, uh, social media, the public outcry has really sparked something uh, in the workforce that I don't think is going away anytime soon.
0: Anton, I think you and I are contemporaries, and looking at your background, I think you and I um, graduated from law school at about the same time, and so. We've experienced the progression of social media. It's been my experience that social media uh, and, and also text messaging has completely changed uh, the way sexual harassment is practiced and mediated. Is that, has that been your experience?
1: It has. You know, the idea of a he said, she said, you know, maybe when we started practicing, Michael, in the early 2000s, no longer exists. Um, You have instantaneous ways of capturing information and sharing it uh, contemporaneously to the situation. And so, you know, when you get into a litigated matter of sex harassment or mediation, there's a treasure trove of information for both sides to look at and consider, primarily through social media.
0: I told my wife the other day, I, I was sitting in a coffee shop preparing for a mediation and uh, someone, uh, it was a sexual harassment case, and somebody uh, emailed me a video and said, I need you to watch this before the, uh, before the mediation and it occurred to me, you know, I probably should not open this up and press play in a crowded coffee shop. I bet you've had those moments too.
1: Absolutely. It's, um, you know, we practice in this area, so we kind of know where the boundaries are. But in the workplace, um, employees, Social media has a way of almost disinhibiting people, like they feel more free to communicate. And quite often, that's in inappropriate ways or ways that are inconsistent with, you know, what the organization would expect from employees. And so, you know, that that text, that photo, uh that voicemail, um, they're all out there now. And, you know, people have to be very thoughtful about how they utilize, uh, you know, these, these cell phones or iPads or computers, because it's, it's creating a record.
0: Anton, one of the most unique things about your background as, uh, as I was preparing for our interview is what you've done in your training outside the law. You were a religious studies major, and you have a seminary degree. Is that right?
1: Yes, that's, that's correct.
0: How does that help you as you're mediating sexual harassment cases?
1: Well, one of the things, Michael, that I think is important for all mediations, but especially important for um, highly personalized um, situations like sex harassment, is giving um, the parties, especially the claimants, a safe space to share um, her story or his story. And as a seminarian and as a chaplain for several years, one of the things you're trained to do, one of the things you kind of have an inclination to do um, almost organically is to, you know, extend a a measure of appropriate empathy to the individual who is in kind of a crisis situation. And that's kind of, that's how I see um, individuals who have sex harassment claims. They they have evidenced um, that something very dramatic and traumatic has happened to them. And so, when I come into the space, uh, my initial meeting, uh, I'm really sensitive to the need to make sure that the individual is comfortable and they know that they're in a space where their their um, their message is welcomed and will be listened to. And so I think that helps quite a bit. And it creates, um, as you know, as a mediator, you have to develop a sense of rapport and, and trust with both sides. That they see you as a resource um, that's going to help them navigate a very difficult conversation and hopefully resolution to their problem.
0: In sexual harassment mediations, Anton, a lot of uh, we mediators spend a lot of time talking. I guess traditionally about Riskin's uh, grid and are you uh, are you a facilitative mediator? Are you uh, a directive mediator? Are you more evaluative? Uh, do you find that one style or another is more effective in sexual harassment cases?
1: Um, I think that having um, a little bit of uh, being flexible, Michael, is helpful. Certainly uh, early in a mediation, I think it's important to be almost purely facilitative. Um, you, you have to allow the parties to set the tone. Um, you have to allow the parties to... Uh, make whatever initial moves they feel are appropriate, um, that gets them into a dialogue. And I think the more the mediator is able to step outside of that and allow the parties to um, guide that process, the better the the process will go. And if the mediator needs to be more evaluative or more directive, um, they are better informed as to where the parties are and what very almost surgical influence in terms of the process will be helpful to keep the parties moving forward to navigate it on their own down the road.
0: That's great. Your uh, your topic at the, um, at the uh, dispute resolution conference in April is playing with fire. How did you come up with that title?
1: Yes, yeah, so I wanted something that was catchy, first of all, um, but I also felt like it was an appropriate title because You know, I don't think anyone fully understood, Michael, I didn't, um, the incredible and lasting impact of the Harvey Weinstein revelations um, and how that exposed the systemic issue of sex harassment in the workplace. And the public outcry and the Me Too movement that was created from that provided, I think, a a much-needed platform for alleged victims to um, make their voices heard. And since then there really hasn't been a topic that's been more challenging or explosive for employers. The question is, how does mediation fit into that moment with all the competing interests that are surrounding it? For example, the public's desire to identify and redress issues of workplace harassment. You couple that with the organization's desire to do what's right under the circumstances and still retain some measure of institutional control it's in that environment, you know, it's a hot, fiery, contentious one that brings unique challenges for mediators and participants in the mediation process. And so I wanted to bring together some of the key stakeholders here in the Twin Cities since we're, you know, have the opportunity to host it, very thankfully here, um, people that could speak to the challenges of this timely topic.
0: Well, that's a good segue. Tell us about the panel, uh, what people can expect if they come and maybe give us, maybe for some of the folks who aren't able to join uh, join us in Minneapolis, a little bit of insight that we might get at the uh, at your panel.
1: Yeah, so our panel is made up of really a, a nice cross-section of practitioners who touch uh, the topic of sex harassment from a variety of perspectives. Uh, we have a judge. Her name is Hillary Bobier. Uh, she's a federal district magistrate judge. And Judge Bobeer hears sex harassment cases regularly from the bench. And she also serves as the facilitator for settlement discussions between parties. I've known Judge Bobier for years. I've practiced in front of her, uh, worked with her on panels. She'll bring a really great and fresh perspective uh, from the bench. On the plaintiff's side, we have Larry Schaefer. Um, he has his own firm here in the Twin Cities. Larry is a highly respected, very strong uh, advocate on the employee side. He really brings the perspective, um, the strategies of, you know, where, where clients are in this process. Do they want confidentiality? Uh, do they want their voices heard? Do they want their day in court? You know, what are the drivers and how does that inform the mediation process, uh, from a plaintiff's perspective? And Larry is going to be a wonderful voice, uh, to, to, to share that with the audience. On the defense side, we have Mary Krakow who is a very well-known attorney representing employers and organizations. And Mary brings the voice of her clients, you know, who are trying to balance the need for accountability when there might be problems of harassment um, in the workplace, uh, but also balancing it with giving sound legal advice and protecting the interests of the organization. And so Mary is going to bring that that perspective, I think, very well, uh, very well delivered uh, from the employer side. And then I also thought it was important because um, we have such a great corporate base here to have someone who is in house talk about this from from that perspective. So we have Dion Blake. Dion is an employment counsel at Target here in the Twin Cities, and she's worn several hats uh, within that organization, including leading the employment law matters for Target headquarters, and now leading the nationwide integrity hotline. So Dion is really at the ground zero for sex harassment concerns for the organization, and she understands how their policies, their training, what the cultural impact is on the organization, and so she's going to bring that perspective of how these um, different drivers um, impact um, her approach to mediation um, from an in-house perspective. And so the goal is for you know these you know, very well uh, experienced uh, excellent speakers to have a conversation um, about this topic, um, to make sure the audience is involved, and to make it an open discussion. There are a couple things that I hope that uh, the participants will will learn and take take away with them. Uh, one of them is, you know, what are some of the landmines that may come along with mediating sex harassment claims? That's something that I hope that we talk about. Uh, another uh, area that I, I'm sure we'll talk about. Um, is some of the best practices to consider, you know, from the different perspective as a plaintiff's attorney, defense attorney. Um, what what do judges think about this? What do in-house counsel and HR um, professionals think about this topic? And then the other one, we kind of hit upon this just a little bit, uh, Michael, is how does the public pressure and how does social media influence the process? So these are some of the questions that I hope that we uh, will bring to light and and have some meaningful conversation with the audience. In in
0: 2019, um, what are some of the major challenges people have in mediating sexual harassment claims?
1: Right. So I think one of them, and it's an open-ended question, Michael, is um, tracking and making process improvements that come along with changes to uh, federal and state law on this topic. So as as you know, um, prior to 2018, um, an employer could deduct uh, the costs and fees associated with settling a sex harassment claim, even if there was a non-disclosure clause. Well, the federal tax bill of 2017 eliminated that deduction for employers. Now, if an employer settles a sex harassment claim and there's a non-disclosure provision as a term of that agreement, the employer can no longer um, deduct that. They can proceed with the settlement, but they can no longer deduct the cost for paying the individual and for the associated attorney fees. Similarly, for employees, and many people don't know this, um, they can no longer deduct the attorney fees associated with settling, settling a sex harassment claim if there's a non-disclosure provision. Now, I know the goal from, uh, from a legislative perspective was to encourage the parties to be more transparent However, you know, it's my belief, Michael, that taking away the tax favorability uh, can make employers more reluctant to engage in mediation to resolve the dispute because it just makes the process more expensive. Um, and I also think that it has a disproportionate impact on individual employees because taking away the ability to deduct those taxes to their attorneys can have a significant financial impact on that individual. So I think it was well-intended, but the consequences, I think, are are doing more harm than good. At the state level, I think there are 15 or 16 states that have um, current bills on addressing non-disclosure agreements. Uh, The state of New York did pass a law um, which disallows non-disclosure agreements for sex harassment claims. The caveat is they are permissible only if the employee makes a specific request for the settlement to be confidential, right? And even then, they still retain the right, the individual employee, uh, to rescind that um, that consent during the 21-day review or seven-day revocation period. So, And there will be more states coming out with um, legislation this year, so it's going to be incumbent upon all practitioners and mediators to be up to speed on uh, some of these changes. I think the other thing to keep in mind, uh, Michael, and it's, it's a bit of a larger philosophical question about sex harassment claims, and, and that is, what makes them unique, right? What is special about them that should change the mediation process, right? Because one of the overarching goals of mediation is to provide an environment for both sides to be heard, right? To establish that setting uh, for a mutual and typically confidential resolution. And so if you have that as one of the main premises of mediation, given the movement, the Me Too movement, um, it's up against some headwinds. The headwind of the public groundswell for transparency and public accountability, it's up against the headwind of the perception that the secrecy of the mediation process may further silence victims and maybe even enable future harassing acts? And so given those headwinds, how should we be looking at changing the mediation process or perhaps even our role as mediators? I think that's an important question. And then the second, I think, philosophical question is, you know, in what way is a sex harassment claim different from any other discrimination claim or disability claim? You know, the it can be argued that a race discrimination claim or a disability claim has equal, uh, deeply personal issues, right? And they both are addressing systemic mistreatment by individuals or groups of individuals. And so how is sex harassment different than that, and should it receive a different treatment from other types of claims like race discrimination or disability discrimination claims? And I think the last philosophical question is You know, what are we trying to achieve in sex harassment mediations? You know, in some other mediation contexts, one of the key roles is having restorative justice to be a part of it, right, where there is a path forward where the acts are acknowledged and they're not repeated. And so one of the questions is, does a traditional mediating um, moment for a sex harassment claim give you restorative justice, and some may argue that it does not, and there's a credible argument for that. But I think the larger question is, should it in the first place, right? Should that be one of the goals of mediating a sex harassment claim? And if so, who gets to decide? Does the government get to decide, the public, or do the parties get to decide, that question?
0: You know, that's uh, on the topic of philosoph- the philosophical approach to sexual harassment claims. Uh, you talked some about the tax consequences of settling these cases, and that's an area I think where um, uh, the, uh, the philosophy of mediation and really the practice of mediation come together and, and create some questions that are really difficult to answer. Uh, I'm sure you've been in, in, in cases where you're mediating a case, and there's something that could have really significant consequences on the party, like the tax consequences of a settlement in a sexual harassment case, which are so very unique. And maybe you know more about that than the parties do. Uh, have you been in mediations where um, where the parties are, uh, are about to agree to a confidential settlement in a sexual harassment case? And as the mediator, you're the only one that's attuned to the tax consequences of this? And if so, how do you handle that?
1: Yes, that's happened before. Um, I would say it's pretty rare here in Minnesota. I think there's a a very strong um, employer um, outside council network and a very strong employee um, representative network and they talk amongst themselves and, and the tax issue is one of those uh, topics that they do discuss. So I think in general there's pretty good awareness uh, of that, but I have had a situation where that's occurred, and, and I kind of looked at it, Michael, as part of a, like a, almost like a non-monetary conversation. So we might be going along in our in our negotiations, and the parties are making meaningful movement. And in a typical mediation, I, I will be sure to inquire from both sides if there are any non-monetary um, components to the settlement uh, that they'd like to raise and discuss. And so I I look at the tax issue almost akin to that. I don't want it to be the driving force, but I also don't want it to be something that surprises the parties at the end of the negotiation like some non-monetary components might, right? So I will say as we're getting closer, you know, have you given thought to any collateral financial consequences that may be associated with settling this type of case, such as deductibility? And if they say yes or no, um, then we'll have further conversation. But I make sure that I have that con- that conversation with both sides um, at the same time um, equally so that parties can have balance to their thoughts of how that impacts their negotiations.
0: Well, this is obviously a conversation that we could spend uh, a long time having Uh, And fortunately, we will have the opportunity to talk more about it at the ABA's uh, Dispute Resolution Conference in spring, and we look forward to to your presentation and your panel, and we certainly appreciate you joining us today.
1: Thank you, Michael. It's been a real pleasure, and I look forward to the conference.
0: That's great. Listen, thank you uh, for joining us for Resolutions, the podcast of the ABA section on Dispute Resolution. Uh, We ask you to join us next time. Uh, and I hope you'll consider joining us at the Section Spring Conference in Minneapolis. The dates are April 10th to 13th, and information is available at AmericanBar.org. Thank you to Anton melton Youth and we look forward to hearing more from Mel- uh, Anton at the conference. I'm Michael Russell, uh, and until next time, this is Resolutions.